All right. Hey, Story family. Good morning. Welcome to the Story. Really glad that y'all are here in person in Houston's beautiful museum district here on Montrose Boulevard. And also, I want to say hello to our lovely Story family over in the Heights at our Timber Grove campus. I'm so glad that y'all are gathered live. And uh, so you get, uh, you get me today instead of, instead of Pastor Kale, you get me on the screen. So all of you at 8200 Washington Avenue, we say hi and we love you. And if you are joining us online, whether it's through YouTube, Facebook, or the Story.Church, we're glad you're part of the story as well. All right, um, my name's Eric, and if we don't know each other yet, if we haven't gotten acquainted, I just want to say hi and welcome to the story again. Hope you enjoyed the, the music here or over at uh, Timber Grove, and, and that you're as uh, excited to be together in this beautiful place on this beautiful day um, for a beautiful opportunity to learn and grow together. And if you don't have a church home or you're not real sure about church yet, I hope you um, give the story a chance and, and find a place here. We have a place for you to fit right in, no matter where you are on your journey. Today's message is, uh, I think, going to be a breath of fresh air to those of you who've been sticking in it with me for the last couple of weeks, because um, we're in a series now called A Physician and the Facts. It is a 22-week exploration of Luke's gospel in the New Testament. And the last few weeks of Jesus's teachings in Luke have been Tough sledding, like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say it any other way. It's just been rough because, you know, not everything Jesus said was nice. It was all true, but some of it's easier here than others, other parts of it, right? So last few weeks have been rough. Today I think is gonna be uh, uh, pretty refreshing. It was refreshing to prepare this message uh, today. It is part 15 of 22. I didn't plan it this way, but we're actually going to be in Luke's uh, 15th chapter as well. So uh, you can kind of get your Bibles or Bible apps ready for Luke 15 in just a moment. But the question that Luke's gospel in 15th chapter is really going to pose for us has to do with what it's like to be lost and how we get lost and what God does to us whenever we are lost? That's the question. And I want you to sort of get in that mindset, whether or not you feel spiritually or emotionally lost. I just want you to remember a time in which you were lost. Maybe not even spiritually, maybe just practically geographically <laughs> lost. It's easy to do in Houston, Texas. I have found since moving here in 2014, I have a, a sneaky suspicion that whoever planned this city was bullied as a child because now they're all like getting back at us <laughs> in the ways they planned this. I love Houston. I love living here, but I'm pretty good with directions and I still to this day get lost with some regularity, especially when I'm downtown because nothing makes sense downtown. It's not even the same street grid as the rest of the city for some reason. And every time I'm there, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone, but it's not just downtown, is it? Like who decided in Houston, Texas to give every major street at least three different names? Who decided, who made that call? It's terrible planning, all right? Terrible planning for, for, for example, for a street like uh, Wesleyan, which is so important to the city, runs right through some of the most, you know, busiest parts of the, of the city traffic-wise. And, and Wesleyan is Wesleyan until you cross San Philippi on the north end, and then Wesleyan's Winnowick. And it's Wesleyan until you go south past, I think, like Bel Air Boulevard, and then it kind of becomes Stella Link, but kind of not, but kind of does, but kind of does. And then, and then Bel Air Boulevard 
is Bel Air Boulevard until you go far enough east for it to be what? Anybody? Holcomb, thank you, you know this, you know this drill. What are we thinking? And you keep following Holcomb East until it becomes, I think, eventually Old Spanish Trail. And then Old Spanish Trail becomes something else. All that happens over there somewhere east of, of 288, which is also known as the South Freeway for some reason, all right? So <laughs> it just never ends. It never ends. I mean, you're on Wall, and then you're on Heights Boulevard. And, and then Heights Boulevard turns into something else. What is it? Anybody know the other one? There's Heights Boulevard, Wall Boulevard, oh, 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 Yoakum. All the same boulevard. <laughs> Three names. You didn't know that, did you? You're learning some Houston trivia today. Bissonette, right over there. Bissonette Street. Doesn't say Bissonette forever. It can also be Benz. It can also be Calumet. Nobody really knows which one's the actual name. We just give it three names, and you pick, and then you get lost and don't know where you are. Montrose Boulevard, right outside of our building here. Montrose Boulevard isn't Montrose forever, is it? What happens when you go north? Studemont. What happens when you go north? Studewood. Thank you. What are we doing? What are we doing? Are we trying to get people lost in our city? It's just so easy to get lost in Houston, Texas. And, and in some ways, that, that plays into my hand today because I, I want to talk about what it's like to be lost and then to be found. But it helps that my audience knows very well what it feels like, that helpless feeling to get lost. If you get lost a lot like I do, you probably know what I know about being lost, which is that when you're lost, the last thing you want to admit to those around you is that you're what? Lost. It's exactly right. No one wants to admit they're lost, especially if you are male. Okay, let's be honest, guys. We don't want to admit that we're lost. And when our wives or our children or those close to us are like, are you lost again, dad? Are you lost again? It's like, no. I, I start just making up lies. Like the road was closed and I had to go another way. Just lie, lie, lie. You know, it's like the, the only thing I don't want to do is admit that I am lost. I don't know why. Insecurity, pride, whatever it is. I just don't want to admit it which is, I think, important to remember for us as a church, because churches have historically referred to non-believing, non-Christian people as the lost. And we didn't make that up. That comes from the Bible. I mean, we almost, instead of a mission, uh, our mission as a church being inspiring non-religious people to follow Jesus, we almost coined it differently, inspiring the lost to follow Jesus or something about the lost, because it's so clear that that's how the Bible refers to folks who have strayed, let's say. But we chose not to call them the lost for two reasons. First of all, if you start calling the people you want to reach the lost, it's going to be harder to reach them, right? Because they're going to be like, that's not me. I don't know. It's, that's condescending in a way. The other problem with that is that if we're saying on, the only lost people are out there, we forget that we too can be lost in here. <laughs> How many of us feel lost today? Not just geographically, but in other ways and facets of our lives. Even if you're with Jesus, some days you can feel a little lost. And so the, the question becomes, you know, who is lost? How do we get lost? And more importantly, how can we be found, all right? The only thing I want you to know really at the outset is that Jesus set this, finding the lost, as a priority of the utmost importance. He said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for I have come to seek out and save the lost. One of his key sort of objectives 
in coming to the earth was to seek out and save the lost, the people who have wandered and strayed, who are not maybe where they should be or where they'd like to be or where Jesus would like them to be. He came to seek them out and to save them. To that end, Jesus was always hanging out with people that religious people called lost. Always. And it drove the religious people crazy. That's one of the reasons they started turning on Jesus. Not because of things he said and did necessarily, but because who he hung out with. The religious folks of Jesus' day practiced something akin to salvation by segregation. They believed that who you hung out with was a reflection of the state of your soul. And it's easy to turn on them and be like, well, they're just bad guys, those Pharisees. I'm glad we're not like them. Careful. Careful, because it's easy to be like them. We are more than we like to admit, but be even more careful because if you dig back into the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, if you, if you want to say it that way, you'll see those guys had some scriptural reasons to think the way they thought. Like, for example, the first verse of the first psalm, the big book of Psalms, what's the very first words in that book say? Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked and stand in the way that sinners uh, take or sit in the company of fools. All right? So they took passages like this one and maybe overemphasized them. They took them to the extreme to say that if you hung out with the lost, then it meant you were lost too. Uh, the only difference with Jesus is that he's not us. He's not like us. And so he doesn't have to take the same precautions some of us do in terms of who he chose to hang out with. He went and sought the lost for a mission, for a purpose. He sought the lost in order to find them. At one point in Jesus's ministry, he told three stories in rapid fire succession in Luke 15. And he told them, among some other reasons, but primarily to illustrate the four different ways people get lost. Three stories, four ways that people like you and me get lost. And if you're feeling lost today or you know someone who's lost and you're worried sick about them, I hope that you'll listen and tune in to Jesus' words. We'll start in um, Luke 15, verse 3. Uh, Luke 15, verse 3 says, Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you, he's saying this to the religious people who spoke against him, one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. All right. So the, the, the emphasis there at the end is, is squarely on the sinner that needs to repent, which really is all of us at some point in our lives. We all need to repent, right? Jesus was clear about that. And when there is a homecoming, when there is a repentance moment, there's more joy in heaven over that than over just a bunch of religious people worshiping ritually. That's what Jesus is saying about the sheep. Now, I know you've heard this story probably a thousand times, and maybe it's a little bit stale or overwrought, okay? I want you to just think with me about something that stood out in this story that maybe you hadn't paid attention to before. For me, it was when Jesus said he, the shepherd 
with 100 sheep, left the 99 in open country. You know how sometimes when you hear the stories of Jesus, you'll kind of write the details in yourself, in your own imagination, how it probably played out. I've always pictured this shepherd taking the 99 sheep home and locking them up in the pen, safe and sound, and then going back out to find the one. That's not what Jesus said happened, is it? Says he left them in open country where they were vulnerable to predators, where more of them could wander off without the shepherd around. And the shepherd went out on his own, making him vulnerable too, to find that one lost sheep. Now, sheep were a shepherd's livelihood. Your kids depended on these sheep. Your family ate thanks to these sheep. And this shepherd is risking everything to go out and find one lost sheep. I guarantee you, there were people in Jesus's crowd who were shepherds for real. And they were either thinking or saying under their breath when Jesus told this story about the shepherd, that ain't how you do it. That's not, that's, no. It's not best practices. That's not the MO of a good shepherd. You take care of the 99 first and secure them, or you send a ranch hand or somebody else out to go find the one lost sheep. You don't put the 99 at risk to go find the one lost one. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, eventually Jesus said, this shepherd finds the sheep. And I don't know how you would feel but I tend to carry around a little bit of um, resentment towards someone who has inconvenienced me like this sheep has inconvenienced the shepherd. And if it was me and I was the shepherd, if I were to find the, shep the sheep, I would be glad that I found it, but I would not be glad to see it. You know what I mean? Like there's a difference. I would, I'm glad I found it, but upon finding it, I would take measures to ensure that it knows that I'm frustrated with it, right? Like that it learns a lesson. But this shepherd's weird. The shepherd described in Jesus's first story doesn't beat the sheep, doesn't shame the sheep, doesn't do any of the things to the sheep that most of us would do to the sheep in the same circumstances. He just puts the sheep on his shoulders and then starts a one-man parade back home through the, the street of the village with the sheep on his shoulders with the widest grin on his face and his stupidest sheep on his shoulders saying, everybody come to a party. I have to throw a party for this lost sheep. You know, I lost my sheep. And everybody's like, we didn't even know you lost the sheep. But I'm going to throw a party in the sheep's honor. I mean, people must have thought he was crazy. And that's exactly the point. Jesus isn't talking about really any shepherd in particular. He's not talking even about us in particular, this is a story about God and the extravagance of his grace when we get lost. And the question posed by the first story is how exactly does a sheep get lost? How particularly does a sheep wind up lost? And if you've ever known a sheep, if you've ever been around sheep, you will know the answer. The answer is that sheep get lost stupidly. Sheep are stupid creatures, and they stink, and they're ugly, and no one loves them, all right? That's the truth about sheep. Now, you might think you love sheep because you watched Shaun the Sheep, or you saw some Charmin commercial with a cute lamb in it. If you've ever been around a sheep, you know they're less cute white puffballs, soft and tender, and more like living, disgusting Brillo pads that have been dragged through the mud and the dirt and the feces. They got a random Band-Aid stuck in there. It's really gross. And 
They're stupid. Goats are, goats are dumb and goats are geniuses compared to sheep. All right? That's the truth. That's the truth. Anybody who's been around these animals knows what I'm talking about. All right? So a sheep gets lost because he's stupid for lack of awareness, for uh, maybe a distraction, for just seeing greener grass over there. I'll go chase that. And that's over there. I'll go chase that. And then just chasing your own appetite all day and then no one else is around and you're alone. And that's how Jesus describes one kind of lost person. Some of us have followed our own stupidity into lostness. We have made stupid choices, myself included. I've been the sheep. And he says that when the shepherd finds us, he will rejoice and throw a heaven-sized party. That's the first category. The second is found in a second shorter story that's nestled in the middle of these two better-known stories about the sheep and the prodigal. And this is in verse uh, 8 through 10. Or suppose a woman, Jesus said, a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's a couple of things I want you to notice. These stories are not meant to be mirror images of each other. They are different on purpose. And in this story, we see that the stakes are higher than they were in the first. The first story told about one sheep of 100. What percentage is that, math geniuses? 1%. This is one coin of 10. What percentage is that? 10. Just by math alone, the stakes are higher here. This woman has 10 coins in her life savings, and she's lost one of them. And so when she realizes that she's lost one of her 10 coins, she does something extraordinary, really, and, and kind of silly in the eyes of some. It must be nighttime. Jesus said she lit a lamp, and she looked all over the house, ceiling to floor, floor to ceiling, swept every inch of the house by light of her lamp. And some might say she would have been better served to wait until morning. Just get some rest, get some sleep, wait till morning, and then God will light up your house with the sun, and you'll be able to see and search more properly. That would have been my approach. Jesus is insistent, because this woman symbolizes God, the Father, that God is more like this woman. In my marriage, I've noticed my wife and I have two very different approaches to lost things. If she loses something, it's everyone's problem until it's found. And everyone must search feverishly, no matter what else you have going on in your life or where else you need to be, nothing else matters until the whatever she lost is found. Could be something as insignificant as like some earring or something. Like, I know that's not insignificant, ladies, but to me it is. So, and to your man it is too. But anyway, um, the, the, the difference in approach is, is, is marked, right? It's obvious because I'm just like, well, it'll turn up. That's my approach. I'm laissez-faire about lost things. It'll turn up. Let's keep living our lives. Keep your eyes open. Stay alert. <laughs> and eventually, it will appear. Well, apparently, God takes an approach that's more like my wife's than mine. And I hate to admit it because she's here. And I don't want her to know she's right. But apparently, God searches for lost things more like my wife does, tirelessly, desperately, 
in ways that might drive us crazy, but, but nevertheless, it reflects his heart. And then, almost even more extraordinarily, this woman finds the lost coin and tells the whole town about it. Again, the town would have had no way of knowing that she lost the coin in the first place. And she's like, you guys, you guys, I found it. I found my coin. And they're like, go back to bed, woman. She's like, no, I'm throwing a party for my lost coin. And they're like, what? Throwing a party for the whole town for my lost coin. The party's going to cost more than the coin. And she's going to throw a party for the coin that she was so desperate to find. It's extraordinary. It's extravagant. The song we sing sometimes would say it's reckless, the reckless love of God. That's, these stories are what that song is based on. Reckless love. From, from one earthly perspective, it seems reckless. From heaven's perspective, it's perfectly normal. How does a coin get lost as opposed to a sheep? A sheep gets lost stupidly. A coin gets lost accidentally. Sometimes people get lost this way. They fall through the cracks. They fall through a hole in someone's pocket. They slip into the cushions of a sofa where they lie for years, unseen, unnoticed. Someone leaves them in the console of their car, at the car wash, never to be seen again. You know, we get lost in all sorts of ways, but this story is a particular kind of lost. There are people who've gotten lost accidentally or by virtue of someone else's neglect, which is different from the sheep, but an important difference, okay? And Jesus tells us, Again, God searches desperately for the sheep and the coin alike, even though they got lost in different ways. There's a third way we get lost. And this is maybe the most, one of the more common ways, and it's found in Jesus' third story, which starts in verse 11. This is going to be familiar, but again, listen for things that stand out to you or maybe strike you in a way that it never has before. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the estate. That is <laughs> unheard of, by the way, an unheard of ask. This is his inheritance he's asking for. You didn't get that until dad was dead. The son is saying to the father, you're dead to me. I'm ready now to live without you. Give me one third, which was the younger son's portion of the estate. So the father divided his property between them, the two sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to, feel, uh, to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Notice the differences. The stakes get even higher here. The first story was 1%. The second story was 10%. Here, you can look at it one of two ways. This is either 33% because it's one-third of the father's estate that he's losing, or you could look at it as 50% of his offspring. That's at risk here. And look at how this son gets lost, and look at how his father Response: If a sheep gets lost stupidly and a coin gets lost accidentally, how does a no-good son get lost? Selfishly. Selfishly. The son basically said, Dad, you're dead. I'm gone. 
And look how the father responded. Okay, son, if that's what you need, if that's what you think, go, take it. I'm not coming back. You're never going to see me again. You're dead to me, dad. And look what the dad said. It's okay if that's what you think, if that's what you need, go. You notice what the father didn't do was what many of us would be tempted to do, which would be to lash out, to punish, to cut off ties, to preserve what dignity we have left in light of this no good son's actions, because this son's actions are making a fool of the father publicly and in his own house. Many of us would have our fuse lit by this behavior, not this father. This father seems to never want to cut ties with us, seems to want to keep us in his orbit, to keep lines of communication open, if at all possible, even from a distance in the hopes that one day there will be a homecoming. Even if you've shamed him, even if you've mocked his name, even if you've upset him, angered him, dishonored him, even if he's been dead to you and you said so, he refuses to cut off lines of communication. He refuses to give up on you. That's what Jesus is saying about God. This selfish son squandered his inheritance on loose living, Jesus said, eating, drinking, partying, prostitutes. It's all insinuated in that phrase, loose living. And then he was penniless and left to feed the pigs, which was a worst case scenario for a Jewish boy. Pigs were the worst of the worst, the filthiest creatures. And the saddest rock bottom moment is when the boy envies the pig slop. And if you've ever really hit rock bottom, I don't know, a few of you have, and I have, I know what it's like. You know what it's like to be so low that you would envy something like pig slop. Okay? And then the turning point in this young man's life. Luke 15, verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went with his father. I picture this young man on that long, lonely walk home to eat crow and beg for his father's forgiveness and for just a place on his father's step. I I imagine him rehearsing this speech over and over again. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired slaves. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you because he knows there's a beating waiting for him when he gets home. He just knows it. How could there not be a punishment waiting for him when he arrives back home for the first time since shaming his father's name? But look how the father responded. Verse 20, while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion. Compassion, meaning literally to suffer with. The father, who was made to suffer by the son, is now suffering with his son, filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father didn't let him finish his speech. Remember, there was another line about maybe one of your hired hands, right? He didn't even get get to say that part. The father interrupted him and said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Whose robe was the best robe? The father's robe, no doubt about it. 
put a ring on his finger. Just any ring? No, there was a certain ring the father had in mind, the family signet ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. That's interesting. I'm going to talk more about that in just a second. But then he said, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. I want you to think of these five gestures or symbols the father offered the, the, the no good son. He said, put the best robe on him. This was a symbol of unconditional forgiveness. He embraced him, right? It's a symbol of unconditional love. Put the family ring on him, unconditional belonging. The feast, unconditional honor. And interestingly enough, these sandals. (laughs) What do we make of that? Well, it was probably just basic hospitality. His bare feet were worn down. But I also think the sandals meant, in a way, if you want to leave again, here's some shoes. Here's your walking shoes. There's something about freedom that I find in the gift of these sandals, the freedom to leave again and to humiliate the Father again. If you need to go, if that's what you need to do, go do it. This beautiful and powerful, and maybe the most powerful gesture in this part of the story is the father himself running, running to the son. He saw him from a long way off because presumably he never stopped looking for him. He didn't go out like the shepherd. He didn't sweep the floor like the woman, but he stood on the front porch of his house day after day, week after week, looking off into the horizon, hoping to spot some semblance of his son's silhouette coming home. Not so he could beat him to a pulp, not so he could berate him and upset him, but so he could welcome him home. My gosh, what kind of love is this? Tim Keller wrote this about the father's embrace of the son. Uh, this is, he's writing about first century dis, uh, Middle Eastern patriarchs. It says, as a general rule, distinguished Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. Uh, children might run. Women might run. Young men might run, but not the pater familias, the dignified pillar of the community, the owner of the great estate. He would not pick up his robes and bare his legs like some boy. But his father does. He runs to his son and showing his emotions openly, falls upon him and kisses him. Jesus is saying this is how God responds when he sees a no good son or daughter coming home. Then this is how Jesus finished the third parable because there's a fourth way many of us in church get lost most often. Can we get a little bit of air to the front, please? Thank you. If people up here are warm, I know I must be about to sweat myself to death. So (laughs) I see some fans going. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. This is the older son, right? So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, was, uh, he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry 
and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me uh, even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, hear that? This son of yours, not even my brother anymore. He's this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because, listen, this brother of yours, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Sheep get lost stupidly. Coins accidentally. No good sons get lost selfishly. And very good sons can get lost religiously. This might be the most pernicious path to lostness because you don't even know you're lost if you've been on your best behavior. You lose sight of all possibility that you could be as lost as those no good sons and daughters are because you've spent your life doing the right thing, saying the right thing, going the right places, hanging out with the right people. You're not like them. And it's lost on you exactly how lost you've become simply by virtue of this sneaky sense of entitlement. <laughs> that's led you to believe that because you've been on your best behavior that God owes you something. And instead of enjoying every, every day of your life with God, you're waiting for the big payoff in the future that you think is coming because how could it not be? You're you. That's the sneaky, pernicious kind of lost that Jesus is warning about with the second part of his final story. It's easy to get lost in Houston, Texas. These days, it's easy to get lost just about anywhere. The whole world feels like the twilight zone where up is down and down is up and north is northeast and south is southwest. Nobody really knows which way is the right way, it seems. Today, if you're feeling lost, there's good news because maybe you got lost by your own stupid choices. Now you're dealing with the consequences and it feels like you're all alone. Maybe you got lost because somebody dropped you, neglected you or forgot about you and you fell through the cracks. You got lost by no fault of your own. Maybe you got lost because you were self-indulgent and selfish, or maybe you're lost today because your religion has convinced you that you're better than other people or more deserving. However you got lost, the same good news applies. There is a father, your father and my father in heaven, who is a good, good father, who goes out to seek us when we're lost, who looks off into the distance, no matter what we've done to him or said about him, to him or to others, no matter how far we've run or for how long we've been gone, there is a God that does not give up on us, a good father who waits for the homecoming. 
And if you've been lost for a while and you feel lost right now and maybe you feel for the first time in a while some kind of a tug to come home, not just to church, but to really come home with God, I want you to know there's not a spiritual beating waiting for you on the other side of that decision. There's not a beat down. There's not more shame. There's compassion. There's a God who runs to you and welcomes you with open arms and puts a ring on your finger and a robe on your back and shoes of freedom on your feet and says, come home, I've got a party ready in your honor. That's how good he is, no matter how bad we've been. And so I pray, no matter how lost you are, that you're ready for a homecoming today. And your homecoming begins simply being found by the God who comes to find us. Take a step toward him today. Open your heart toward him today. Let him be the center of your life again where you know he belongs. You've tried everything else. Nothing else has worked. Come home to Jesus. Come home. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for being a good father. We see illustrated in these stories told by Jesus exactly the extent to which you'll go to find us and reclaim us as your sons and daughters. Lord, we confess we've gotten ourselves into quite a mess at times. Some of us are deep in the mess right now. Some of us might be at rock bottom right now. Lord, we know that you are full of grace and compassion, ready and willing to welcome us home at a moment's notice. Lord, I pray that moment is now for someone in this room or watching online or over at Timber Grove. Lord, we're ready for a homecoming. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.